Good morning. You're looking really good. You're looking really good. How do you feel? Great, good. Uh, my name's RD. I'm one of the pastors here on uh, staff, and it's great to uh, be with you this warm, wonderful, hope-filled morning. Um, and uh, I just always love gathering with, with the body. It's beautiful and great and joy-filled. So glad that you're here if you're a first-time visitor. Uh, if you're not a Christian, if you don't know where you are, then we're especially glad that you're here. There are plenty of people like that here uh, trying to follow Jesus, figure out who Jesus is, and that's who we're going to be talking about this, this morning. We're in a series here launching a kind of a new season or renewing a season here at Door Creek Church called Rooted, Grounded in Christ for the Good of the World, believing God's calling us to go deeper, uh, to reach further for him in our city and around the world. And two weeks ago, Mark launched off on this series, kind of giving the overview of why we're doing this and, and what that's going to look like specifically, whether it's a sports ministry or a building for North Campus or it's going to be a Northside Ministry Center so many different places that we want to see the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven. But we didn't just want to do kind of the one-off and give you the vision and then kind of then pass the bucket and say, so now it's time to give. We want to actually ground this in the scriptures and in the Bible and why we should be rooted in Jesus, rooted in community, rooted in doing good works and all kinds of things this series is about. So last week I talked about what is really central and most, most important, which is being rooted in Jesus. I talked about John 15 and the difference between abiding versus striving and, and having we need to abide in Jesus, depend upon him for our life, for our growth, for our joy. And that's his commission to the disciples is remain in me, stay with me because the world's going to be hard and difficult, but it's going to be a lot more hard and difficult if you're disconnected from the vine or if you're attached to the vines that actually aren't me. And this week, what we want to talk about is something that I think is actually equally as important, but something that is, I think, even harder and more difficult and may make us feel a bit more uncomfortable. So there's your warning. Because not only do we want to be rooted in Jesus, we also want to be rooted in loving community in the church. And that's what we're talking about this morning, being rooted in a loving community, being rooted in, in the church and what that looks like and what that means. And so here's a wild, here's a wild thought. The church should be the most beautiful, inclusive, diverse, and compelling community on earth. The church should be the most beautiful, inclusive, diverse, and compelling community on earth. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but in your heart, how many of you, like, you feel like, yeah, totally, that's the church, <laughs> right? That, when I think of church or when I think of what my friends think of church, I'm pretty sure that's exactly what they think of. <sighs> Awkward, right? Laughter, nervous laughter. Oh, I don't think so. How many of you, though, may be like, you know what would make church amazing? You know how church would be really great if we just got rid of all the people, <laughs> Right, you ever said that? Like, wouldn't it just be great? I know pastors sometimes are like, what? if it wasn't for all the people, this would just be just preaching, you know, and just counseling with really no one, but just kind of doing that, right? Just working on Sundays, and that would really be it. It's hard to do life with people. It's difficult to do life with people. What if the church was just filled with people who already were rooted, who already were, who already, who were mature, right? And so you could just be like, hey, I, already, I got this covered. My marriage is great. Right? I'm content in my singleness. I'm giving generously. What, what else do you have for me? But that, that's not who we are. 
right? And that's not what the church is. But this is the ideal. This is the hope that, that the church would be this community. And, and it's, it's Jesus' hope for his body, the church, to actually be compelling and beautiful and inclusive and diverse. But the fact is that we have, um, in our country especially, and in the West, fewer and fewer people who are attending church. The fewest of all time people who are actually showing up uh, to the gathered body on a weekend and actually um, participating in the church. And there are even fewer people who are not just attending church, but are actually connected to a local church. Who are, who are um, actually serving or giving or involved in any way. Most people uh, now are kind of on the fringes, kind of come in and then leave. And it has real no impact in their life, except they feel like they should do it because it's church. Most people go to church um, about two times a month on average, and which totals, if you do the math, about 24 times a year. So you basically get one day of gathering with the church for your whole year. Now, is that, was that the vision of Jesus? Man, I hope not. We live in an age of radical individualism, and we actually live in a culture which is the most individualistic that has ever existed in society, and that's not an exaggeration, right? This is the... Um, culture of me and mine and selfie and don't tell me how to live my life. I'm not hurting anyone, so who are you? And if you actually are any type of authority figure, then you should just be quiet. And if you don't be quiet, I'm going to call you these names in the name of tolerance, <laughs> right? And that's the culture in which we live. We're more disconnected than ever. We have tons of Facebook friends, but few real friends, <laughs> Right, I go through my Facebook, uh, if you're on Facebook, um, you know, you should get off it. Like, if you're not on Facebook, you are so wise. You are, it is a black hole of death, this thing. It's just, it's not good. Dude, get away from it. Get, flee from it. But I'm still on it, so I'm still working through that in my own heart. I was scrolling, I turned uh, 30 this week, is my birthday, and so everyone comes out of the woodwork and wishes you happy birthday. And people, most of them, who I'm like, I have no idea who this person is. Like, I don't even know how we became friends. And it's like, hey, birthday, do you remember that time? I'm like, no, I don't even know who you are. Like, I don't, you, we're, how are we friends? And it, well, Facebook uses the word friend. I remember when, when Facebook first started, and uh, before you even introduce yourself to someone, I'd be like, hey, can I be your Facebook friend? Because you wanted to have the most friends. And, all, and now I scroll through my list, and like every, other, every third person probably, I'm like, I'm just staring at their picture, and I'm like, who is that? I don't know. And so I just unfriend them. <laughs> I just unfriend them. And I'm like, I, I don't know. And we have these, these, these counterfeit friendship, these, these illusions of community, but many of us don't actually have real community. And now, actually, if you look at research, that people, especially in the United States, have fewer real friends than ever before. The number used to be about three to 3.5 friends per person. And now it's down to just under two, like 1.9. And not only that, but the number of people that either have zero close friends or just one close friend has jumped about 25% in the last 20 years. As we become more isolated, more in our own world, more busy. People move frequently. We move homes frequently. We move cities frequently. We move churches frequently. It's very consumeristic. Well, this, this church doesn't have what I need for my kids or for, my, right, for me, so I'm going to find a church that actually caters to me. Uh, we need to move, we need to do this, we've got to satisfy our needs, and our life ends up becoming about ourselves, and we never plant roots down anywhere, really. Uh, researchers have talked about the iPod effect. I thought this was just fascinating, where they've studied how um, uh, people who attend concerts now, or symphonies, uh, you know, back in the day, 
some of you will remember this, like you had to buy a whole CD, even I remember this, you had to buy a whole CD and you couldn't just buy one song. And what they've discovered now is that actually more and more people will show up to concerts or symphonies for only one or two songs and then leave. Because if you actually are on iTunes now, and I know I'm, I'm dropping a lot of technological stuff on you, but you can, you can buy one song. You don't have to buy the whole song. And every once in a while, there'll be an album or an artist who's really passionate about you buying their whole album because they want you to hear the story. But that always makes me mad. Like, I just want the one song. But they're, they're like, I'm telling a story with this album. If you only buy one song, you're just going to miss it. But I just, I just want the one. So that's all I want. And they've just seen that people will come to concerts and leave when they've gotten what they wanted. And in those subtle ways, we're defining this consumeristic society where the more that we can get for ourselves, we want. And the church is not immune from this. Andrew Del Banco, in his, his book, The Real American Dream, talks about how in the history of our country, there have been kind of three, from his research, so this is not like science or necessarily true, but I think it's compelling, that there have been three kind of symbols which have guided the narrative of America and how we see ourselves as Americans. And the first symbol that guided America from the founding up until about the Civil War was God. Now, we don't have to get into the faith of the fathers and the mothers and all of that here, but I think it's safe to say that there was certainly an element of God in the founding of the colonies and that that was an overarching understanding of who we were as a people, that this was a land of destiny, rightly or wrongly understood. That was kind of the, the narrative by which we existed as a people. And that was really strong for about 100 years, and not that it's fully gone away, but it certainly is not like it used to be. And in the book, he says, there was, there was the God um, symbol. And then about the Civil War, after the Civil War, we transitioned from that to nation became the symbol. The United States became uh, everything and all things. And patriotism grew and love for country grew, right? And that's nothing wrong with love for country and all of that. But you, we had to displace God with something else. Because people are made for transcendence, he writes. And so the nation became the thing that we bow before and worship and be a good citizen and love your country and all of these civic things. And he said about the 19, after World War II, into the 50s, 60s, and 70s, there was something else that now still remains as kind of our, our controlling symbol. It used to be God, and then it was the nation. And in the 60s and 70s, and up till today, it has become self. It has become self. And now we, whether we say it or not, we worship the self. And as a non-Christian, actually, Andrew Del Banco, he writes about this. He says, you think that when we finally arrived at this, this promised land of ourselves being in control, being the masters of our ship, you think that people would be happier. You think when they've got rid of the old notions of God and, right, and the old notions of country being the greatest, you think when they finally said, well, finally we are in charge, people would be happier and more fulfilled. And yet he writes in the book this. He says, Americans seem to have a longing for transcendence. But our current cultural moment magnifies the self as the ultimate symbol of progress. But the elevation of the self as the dominant symbol in American culture has not led to the promised land, but to a nation of increasing narcissism, loneliness, isolation, and sadness. And the remedy for this radical individualism is actually the church. It's a loving community, but not just any loving community. It's not just you know, people gathering around just saying the word love. That's actually not, not the hope here. What the answer is for individualism, what the answer is for people that are just living their own life is to come back to what Jesus talks about in John 15, what he talks about in the early church where it's actually a community of people. And this might be the point in the talk where the pastor says, and so now make sure you get in a life group <laughs> because that's what churches do. 
right, be in a life group because it's the answer. And what I want to say is, sure, great, yes, life groups are good, small groups are good. But if that, if that is the only motivation, then it's not, that doesn't really sound very compelling to me at all. But here's what you have to remember, that God is actually three persons. It's one God, monotheism, but it's, God is three persons. And from eternity past, so forever, to eternity future, so forever, God has always existed as three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. So the God who created the entire universe is not solo. He's actually a community. He's a family. God has always been a father. He doesn't sometimes put on the father hat and say, you know what, for these years I'm going to be a father. And Jesus, now it's time to go be a son. Jesus is always the son. God is always the Father. And so what created the entire universe, the stars, the trees, and us, is a community of persons loving, serving, and honoring each other. And so God doesn't create humans because he needs them, because he already is satisfied in himself. He creates humans because he wants to share his love with humanity. And so if, if humans are created in the Imago Dei, in the image of God, then don't you think that if we're created in this image of a personal God, of a communal God, that God would desire for us to be in community with each other? Because Adam is created in the garden. Though he has a relationship with God, God says it's not good for man to be alone. And you may think, well, he's not alone. He has God. And yet God says, you cannot fully understand who I am unless you're in relationship with horizontal people because we all reflect the image of God to each other. And so this whole idea of being a part of the church, of being community, is rooted in the Trinity itself. It's not just being community. It's this is who God is. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. And so when you read through the Old Testament, what you see is not the person of Israel. You see the people of Israel. You see God, God saving and rescuing an entire people group, and he gives them the law, and he gives them uh, things to obey. He says, this is how you should treat each other. This is how you should love each other, because I'm not just interested in forming a bunch of islands over here with different people doing whatever they want. I actually want to put these people together and have you love and serve each other. The, the people would look and say, wow, look how they love and serve each other. They're very different. They're very diverse, but it's unbelievable that they're one. They're unified. And so it was the people of Israel that God was moving through. But now we come to um, the church. And so now we have the church, which is a community of, of people. And so here's the truth that we talk about all the time here. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's, it's the good news that God saves us individually. So that's not a family affair. God saves you by his grace because of his love for you on the cross. Jesus dies in your place for your sin, repairing the relationship with the triune God and so that you could have peace with your neighbors. But God may save you individually, but he actually saves you then into a family. He saves you into a community. He doesn't save you and say, okay, just don't do anything. Just stay in your own island and wait to get beamed up to heaven. God saves you into a family. He saves you into the church. He saves you personally, but then he sends you to be part of a community of people. This is what Jesus is talking about with his disciples in John 15. This is what he's talking about. You cannot be a Christian and be totally disconnected from the church. It's impossible. I remember, um, especially when I was in high school and college, a lot of my friends would be like, R.D., I know you're going to the ministry, and yeah, that's wonderful, nice for you. You know, I'm really spiritual. Um, and I, would, I should have just been like, and what does that mean? <laughs> right? 
What, can you actually define what that means, you know, or does it just make you feel like you are in touch with things, you know, and maybe I'm, I'm super spiritual, but I, the church is just organized, and blah, I just don't like it, I just kind of find Jesus in my heart. I, I like Jesus, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. Well, that just won't do. Because you can't love Jesus and then not love the thing that he lived and died for that he gave up his life for, you have to love both of them. The church is the means by which we grow as the people of God. Joseph Hellerman in his book, When the Church Was a Family, he writes this, long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay also grow. People who leave do not grow. We all know people who are consumed with spiritual wanderlust, but we never get to know them very well because they cannot seem to stay put. They move along from church to church, ever searching for a congregation that will better satisfy their felt needs. Like trees repeatedly transplanted from soil to soil, these spiritual nomads fail to put down roots and seldom experience lasting and fruitful growth in their Christian lives. See, Jesus in John 15 has gathered the disciples around and he's giving them the final marching orders. And he says, you're going to be a community of people that love each other. As I have loved you, I want you to love each other. Remain in my love. Stay in my love because you can't do it on your own. You have to do this together as brothers and as sisters. Jesus says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And this is what love looks like to lay down your life for each other. And then the final command in verse 17 of 15, he says, this is my command, love each other. And so this is the community that Jesus is forming. It's a community on mission. It's a community on purpose. It's not just a community that just hangs out together. The disciples don't just stay in the upper room and say, okay, well, let's just sit up here and just talk about things. Right? Because you can have, technically you can have community by just hanging out and doing nothing. Right? But that's not formative. That's not shaping. And so sometimes what we say here is that you can do, right, life change happens in circles, not just coming on the weekend in rows, and that's true. But life change doesn't necessarily happen in circles unless, you, unless you're living for something greater than yourself, greater than that circle. Right, think, think of, why, why do you think soldiers are so bonded together? Is it because they just sit around the barracks and talk about life? <laughs> or is it because they're serving something greater and are bonded together in war and in the fire? Why do you think sports teams, the great ones, become so bonded together? Just because they practice together? <laughs> or because the goal that they're working for shapes who they are and how they love and serve each other? Why do you think teachers have such a camaraderie? Because they're trying to make it through the students, but still. <laughs> right, they're serving kids. They're saying, we want to educate these children, right? We're, we're working for this goal, and it's really hard, and it's really difficult, but we're not just sitting in the break room kind of talking about TV shows, right? That's not going to build anything but selfishness. And Jesus says, the church is just like that. Technically, right now, we're just gathered together, but we're gathered together with a purpose to hear about who God is, how glorious he is, how majestic he is, to be inspired by who he is and to go out in the world and bear fruit, to have his character reproduced in us, to make disciples, to change the world. What, what greater purpose could there be? What more could unite us together as a family of people than the purpose that God has given the church in the world? And that's the purpose that God invites you and I to be a part of in the church. And so what are the characteristics of this loving community? If you have a Bible, you can grab, um, grab it. Or if you have a phone, you can look up um, Romans 12. We'll be in Romans 12 for the rest of the time. Romans chapter 12, verses 4 through 5 and 9 through 21. It'll also be on the screen. 
Romans 12, verses 4 through 5. So here Paul, uh, the apostle, is talking to the church in Rome. And so the, the letter to the Romans is kind of the, it's like the Mount Everest of theology. It's, it's dense, it's beautiful, it is amazing, it's gigantic. But a lot of times we forget that Paul's actually writing to a people who are trying to live this out, who are trying to love. And they're in the city of Rome, the height of the Roman Empire, and Paul is giving them commands of how they should do church. And so if you're saying, what does it look like to be a loving community? What does it look like to be a church that actually loves each other and serves each other and serves their city? Then you could do far worse than Romans 12. And so we're just going to work through it briefly. We can't get into everything. I wish we could, but you would be here. We'd be here way too long. Uh, And so we'll just work through it quickly here to look at characteristics of a church that loves and serves. Romans 12, verses 4 through 5, Paul's writing to the church. He writes this. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. So here's an illustration that everybody in the church in Rome, and hopefully everyone here can understand, because um, how many of you have a body? Right, okay, some of your hands didn't go up, so I'm concerned. (laughs) This is your body. You're welcome. Paul says, as he always is trying to connect with people, says everyone has a body, right? But does your eye do what your kneecap does? I hope not. (laughs) That would be weird. Does, do your toes do what your fingers do? No. But your body is all connected together. And you move your body and it just happens naturally. Paul says, just as you have many functions in different parts of your body, it remains one body. So it is with the body of Jesus also known as the church, that there are many, many people with different gifts and callings, but we're still one body. We're we're diverse. We're massively diverse, but we all serve one king. We all serve one purpose. We're all unified together. Paul says this happens in Christ. In Christ, he has made many people. If we took a poll in this room about your preferences or your hobbies or your political affiliation, which we're not going to do, so all right, calm down. Um, How different would we be? Very different, which makes me very happy. Because what unites us is the gospel of Jesus. That Paul says, though there were many, in Christ we have become one family. And I love here in verse 5, he says something pretty controversial for us. He says, he says so you actually belong to one another. You see what he says? He says, you actually belong to one. Each member belongs to all the others. Right? And, I, and I read this and I'm like, I belong to no man. <laughs> right? I, I do what I want. And yet Paul says, well, then you don't understand the church. Because actually, because we've made church just I do what I want and I come and I get fed and then I leave and I live my life. And there's, there are not many of us who sometimes think about how do we connect to each other. Paul says, if you want a church that actually loves each other, you have to think, how do we belong to each other? How do we actually, right, have responsibility for each other so, so that when you are rejoicing, I'm rejoicing. And when you're mourning, I'm mourning. And actually, I have authority over you. And guess what? You have authority over me because we belong to each other as one family. Now, isn't that a crazy idea? Isn't that countercultural? <laughs> Paul says, but if God has made you one, then you belong to each other. You depend upon each other. That's a beautiful picture of being dependent upon each other and because you're dependent upon the Lord. We are the body of Jesus. And so then here in verses 9 through 21, Paul is just going to outline specifics of what this looks like. He's going to start in verse 9 and say, love must be sincere. 
Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. So Paul says, love must be sincere. And he's talking to the church in Rome. And so that's kind of the sentence which begins this little paragraph here. He says, love must be sincere. And this word love in the Greek is the Greek word agape, which means sacrificial love. It means suffering love. It means Jesus-style love, laying down your life for others. Paul says, if the church is going to be the church, it has to, the love must be sincere. Not just I like you, but then I'm gonna go talk behind your back. But actually, even people that we, disagree with or even dislike we love because it's actually the power of Jesus working in us changing us so that we can love people who are very different from us Paul says this love must be sincere and that word sincere means not fake not counterfeit not just fleeting it means like we like we really adore Creek Church we love each other even if we don't all know each other Right, we actually, love must be, Paul says, if love is not sincere, this whole thing is pointless. It's counterfeit. Because if the outside world sees that you say you love each other, but you actually don't, then what are they gonna think about God who is love and the way in which he loves his people? Well, does God love you like the way you love each other? Man, I hope not. The way in which we love each other shows the world how God has loved us. Love must be sincere, not pretend, not fake, not just with words. And so then Paul in verses 10 through 21, he's just going to outline what does that love look like? He's going to start in verse 10. He's going to say, be devoted to one another in love. There it is again. Honor one another above yourselves. Be devoted to one another in love. Now, if you're reading the English translation, which probably most of you, most of you are, you, you would not know that the word that Paul uses in verse 10 for love is actually not the agape word. That's why I'm here to tell you that the Greek word there is actually the Greek word Philadelphia. Now, if some of you are familiar with geography and cities in America, you may be thinking, Philadelphia, that is the city of? Oh, you nailed it. Great job. Great job. Good job. The city of brotherly love. Now, why does Paul use that word? Why doesn't he use agape again? Paul was saying, yeah, sacrificial love must define who you are, but because God is your father and he has made you brothers and sisters, you should love each other as siblings. And so that's why he shifts to the word Philadelphia. He says, you are actually family together. You're not just sacrificing for strangers. You're not just sacrificing for people that kind of get together sometimes. You're actually sacrificing for your brothers and sisters, truer brothers and sisters in your biological family because it's been created by the blood of Jesus. Be devoted to one another in brotherly, sisterly love. What a picture, what an image. Honor one another above yourself. Show deep respect. Revere others before you. It's something that I want to just create in my own life is, is, a, is a life of honor where I'm honoring other people, where I'm, where I'm seeing other people as greater than me. And especially as someone younger, I want to look to older people that have come before me and say, how can I honor you? And not just assume that I know everything. And you don't. Let's say, how can we create a culture at, at our church where we actually honor one another? We just say, I just, I just want to think of others above myself. Now, that's easy for me to say. And then it's actually hard to live because we actually think of ourselves more than honoring others. And yet Paul says for the church to be the church, we have to honor each other, be devoted to each other in, in love. That characterizes who we are as the people of Jesus. Paul goes on, he says, never be la- verse 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. I love this. Paul, like we said last week, sometimes we're gonna wither. Sometimes we're going to feel like the vine is not producing the nourishment that we need. And Paul says, I don't want that to happen. I want you in the church to keep your spiritual zeal, to keep your spiritual fervor. The, the word fervor, the idea here, I love in the Greek, is like water boiling. 
That's the type of fervor that we're talking about. So you know when the water begins to boil and if you don't get to it in time, it starts to get crazy in the kitchen, just exploding. That's what Paul says your faith should be like. And we need each other to keep the fire hot. We need each other to keep things warm and not lukewarm. Right? It's hard enough to keep passion going on our own. And we need each other to be accountable. We need each other to remind each other in our groups, in our church, about who God is and what he's done. Because sometimes we won't have spiritual fire. And yet we have a brother or sister who says, remember that time God did this in your life? Remember, look what God's doing for me now. And we're refreshed because we're in a community that's stoking the fires of faith and passion. And that's why we need each other. Never be lacking in zeal. Verse 12, Paul says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Now, we we could just sit here and talk about how glorious and great this verse is. And Paul's talking to the church in Rome. He's saying, I want you to be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. To be joyful in hope doesn't mean that I, oh, I'm happy and I hope things work out, but I don't know. That sounds terrible. That should make you terrified. (laughs) But for the church in Rome and for us, what we can say is we know how everything ends. Right? Spoiler alert, God wins. Right? God recreates everything in his image, and we get to be a part of that as his bride. And Paul says to the church in Rome, I want you to be joyful in hope. And here, here joy is not something that can be taken away from you. When you place your joy in your circumstances, it will come and it will go because your circumstances are like shifting sand, they will always be changing. And so don't let your circumstances drive how you think about God. Because then you'll be in your circumstances and think, well, God didn't do this, or God, I can't believe that God allowed this to happen. Does God not know what I'm walking through right now? Instead, let the character of God drive your circumstances. And let joy be a position of your heart instead of something that you just give away or is taken from you. Because we have a joy that cannot be taken from us. Everything else in your life will be taken from you. Everything else in your life will be in the grave. Every, everything except for the one thing that matters. And Paul says to a church that is being oppressed and killed, be joyful in hope that Jesus Christ is coming again. He says, be patient in affliction. Now, this is affliction that you and I don't know much about. The church in Rome was oppressed. They're in the heart of the Roman Empire, which did not like the Christians. You think things are difficult now for Christians? Please. The church in Rome would have people not show up, not because they didn't want to come to church, but because they were no longer alive. And Paul says, I want you to be patient in affliction. I want you to endure the affliction you're suffering just as Christ did. And he says, I want you to be faithful in prayer. Now, if there's a better mission statement for what the church should be, this is a great one. (laughs) Praying to God, asking God, because the second you pray, you just confess, I can't, and God can't. And this church is not built on human power or human creativity, but God's power and God's creativity. And that's why it grows. Not because we're awesome, but because God is awesome. And yet he's using us. I think the Roman church held that verse high. They held it high. Verse 13, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. The word in the Greek for hospitality literally means welcoming strangers. But oftentimes in our culture, and I'm guilty of this as well, right? Few and fewer people have front porches and we do all of our lives in our back yards and we lose the sense of community in our neighborhoods. And yet uh, uh, just a calling of the Christians is to be the most hospitable people on the planet, welcoming people, loving people. How else are many people gonna know about how you live your life, how you follow Jesus? 
Right, this is something that Emily and I, my wife and I, we're, we're, we want to be more, connect, more committed to in our neighborhood where no one on our street knows Jesus. And so yesterday, while I was, I was talking to the King of Justice someone, I was teaching here, I got home last night, I was like, hey, how was your afternoon, babe? And she was like, it was awesome, the girls were playing outside, and Emily and I, we ha- she has an international friend, uh, Sun Young and her husband, that we've had since we've been here, and they've now had a child, which is great, because we have two kids, and so they came over, they're playing outside, our two neighbors down the street who aren't Christians came by, and they're talking with us, um, and then our new neighbors, who are both professors at UW with their two girls, they came by, and then we had a same-sex couple who lived down the street, they came by, and we're all talking, you know, with, with them, and so always the questions are like, you know, they're like, hey, remind us what your husband does again. <laughs> And I'm just like, he converts people away from hell, you know, no. <laughs> yeah, that may work in Dallas, but it won't work here. She was like, he's a pastor. And, you know, they kind of like, oh, you know, you know, it's like, oh, you seem so smart. Like you seem, you know, and so they're talking, but they're really nice. And Emma and I have been in our street now for three, three years now, so we've built up relationships, and she was able to say, hey, you know, you know, at our church, we're actually, um, we had a Kingdom Justice Summit yesterday, we're actually collecting bags um, the next few weeks for our partner schools, because we want to serve and, and bless our city, and that's the type of church that, that we are. And she said that everyone in the circle was kind of like, oh, and what type of church is that? <laughs> right, what type of church is that? That's a church like this church. And when you are the people of God, it's not that you, we invite everyone in and just say, hey, do you want to have a Bible study? <laughs> you just say, I just want to be open about my life. Emily doesn't lie and just not say what I do. I always say what I do. And then I try and find a way in. Depending on how they react, I try and find a way in. And it may not be that conversation, but as the people of God, who are you inviting into your life to watch how you parent, how you do marriage, how you do singleness, how you do your life? Now, that doesn't mean you have to just open up the word every time, but that should be in some way a part of it. As the people of God, we should be so welcoming, so hospitable to strangers, to people that we would never actually sit down at a table to. It doesn't mean you agree with everything they believe, but love is not always about fixing people or changing people. It's just about loving people and letting God do everything else. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Okay, these last two sections here, I've got to roll through kind of quickly, but they say basically the same thing. Paul writes, he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. So quickly here, the church was getting persecuted. You think their natural reaction would be to fight back? And Paul says, do not do that. Fight back with love, fight back with service. Do not curse them, bless them. And create a church where people that are, that are rejoicing, you rejoice with them. And people that are suffering, you suffer with them and you mourn with them and you cry with them. And we could do a lot better at our churches, especially in the United States, with weeping with people because sadness is actually not wrong. Right, hopelessness is not good. But sadness is sometimes the way things have to be for a season. And just to weep with people. Some of my most formative experiences in my life have been with a brother or sister just came by. Something's hard has happened in my life or someone I know has passed away. And they just say, you know what, I don't have an agenda. I just want to show up and, and be here to mourn with you. Because you're my brother and my sister. Now that's powerful. No agenda, no reason. But you're mourning and so actually I'm mourning. Because we're family. I love this. Paul says, be willing to associate with people of low position. So that the church was not just trying to get all the who's who of Rome. 
okay, can we get the general? I can't get the general. Can we get the mayor? Or can we get the actors? Who, who, who can we get to make this church look cool? No. Paul says, associate with people who would never be invited to the table. Because that's how I want you to be known, as the people who love and serve people who never are loved and served. And you can't be proud and do this. You have to be so humble. Last section here, verses 17 through 21, Paul says, do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, I love this, as far as it depends on you, which it may not always, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Again, Paul's just echoing for the church in Rome. Do you want to just totally shock the Romans? Just keep loving them. Keep, when they actually beat you, don't fight back. When they starve you, man, offer them something to eat. When they're thirsty, actually give them something to drink. And in that way, they'll just think, what is wrong with you? And you could say, Jesus is wrong with me. All right, this is totally countercultural, Right? Like, this, actually, if you count this up, I think it's 21 commands. I counted them, but I'm not terribly great at math, so it could be 20, 21. 21 commands where Paul says, this is what love looks like when it's sincere. This is what a loving community looks like. Now, this right here, this is compelling, right? Just saying I go to church and then leave is not compelling. But living like this is compelling, right? Don't you want to be a part of a church like that? Don't you want to be associated with a church like that? I mean, that's what we're trying to do here at Door Creek Church. Do you think that, right, the non-Christians in Rome saw the Christians going to church, let's just say, for argument's sake, at 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning and thought, whoa, they are going to church at 9 a.m.? Unbelievable. (laughs) What a sacrifice. I mean, to God be the glory, right? We've never seen anything like it. Do you think that's what changed the world? Was people who look just like everyone else, who talk like everyone else, who think like everyone else, just showing up for an hour and then leaving? No. No, that didn't change the world, right? The world does not need more people who go to church. The world needs more people who are being the church, who are the church, right? The word ekklesia, where we get our word for church in the Greek, was a word which predated the time of Jesus. So it was a secular word, which meant um, assembly or gathering. And so the town clerk would call a ekklesia, a church gathering, and only the who's who could be there. Women were excluded, slaves were excluded, the poor people were excluded. It was all about exclusion. And it was only a who's who could be there, and they would do the business of the city. And Jesus redeems this term. And in Matthew 16, 18, he says to this ragtag group of disciples, many of whom sometimes hate each other, and yet he wants them to love each other, he says, through you, I will build my ecclesia. And a term that was formerly used for exclusion, I am going to now use for inclusion. Where now slaves are welcome and poor people are welcome and men and women are welcome to sit down together at the table of fellowship and rich people and poor people and people of all ethnicities can come together. There has never been anything like this in the world and Jesus creates it through the cross. A community of people who you cannot imagine doing life together are trying to find a way to do life together and the world takes notice and says that's compelling. That's unbelievable. I don't even know if I agree with all of that, but I'd love to be a part of a community like that. And you, you may say, and I, and, I, and I understand this, you may say, this sounds messy. Far better just to kind of come sit in church every once in a while and then leave, and I can just kind of live my life. 
I just don't want to get bothered by all of this. just sounds heavy. This sounds messy. And I just want to say it is. It, and it's not something that I'm not doing. My wife and I lead a life group. I'm a pastor. I'm, I'm in the trenches with you. And it's messy and hard, but it is worth it. It is the only way to be changed and to know what the power of God can look like in the body of Jesus on earth. It is so messy, but it is so worth it. You may say, well, you don't, you, don't, you don't know my story. You don't know how I was hurt by my life group, how they abandoned me or how they didn't help me in this time of need. Or, or you don't know what I heard at church growing up and how the pastor just guilted me or, or shamed me or how this one time this Christian said this to me. And so, yeah, I, I like Jesus, but the church is just a bunch of people who just judge and hate each other. And I would just say to you, I've been a part of a church like that. I know what that feels like, how awful that feels, how terrible that feels. It almost made me want to walk away from not just church, but ministry altogether. And so I totally affirm that. And if that happened to you, let me just say as a pastor, I'm sorry that's happened to you. That's wrong. That's not who we should be. But sadly, sometimes it's who we are. But let me say this to you. If you say it's not worth it because of the pain that I might endure, because of the betrayal I might endure, let me remind you of one person who it was worth it for. Jesus Christ. Because though he was in Trinitarian form in heaven with God the Father, he always remained in the Trinity, but he left the confines of that to come to earth, to be with men and women who he knew would betray him, who he knew would leave him, who he knew would abandon him. In John 15, when he's talking to them and saying, I want you to love each other as I have loved you, he knows all of them are going to abandon him. One's going to totally betray him and give him up to the Romans. Another, Peter, who's going to build the church, is going to deny him three times. And no doubt every time a rooster crowed his whole life, he thought, what have I done? And yet Jesus says it was worth it. It was so worth it. And the truth is everyone else in your life may abandon you, but Jesus never will. And he says, keep, keep being a part of this community called the church because I love her and I died for her and she's beautiful and she's flawed. But she is the hope for the world. Do you know who lives out Romans 12, 9 through 21? Jesus Christ. Do you know who is joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer? Jesus Christ. Do you know who rejoices with those who rejoice and mourns with those who mourns? Jesus Christ. Do you know who is not afraid to associate with people of low position like you and like me? Jesus Christ. Do you know who is not overcome by evil but overcame evil with the cross was Jesus Christ. And so that is what we say to the world. That's what we get to be a part of, is, is that Jesus Christ is making a people for himself to make him look great and to make this, this crazy bunch of people called the church who are broken and sinful actually try and find a way to do life together. And that's compelling and that's beautiful and that's amazing. And I encourage you to be a part of that and to put roots into that and quit just playing at church and quit consuming from church and quit living off the fat of other people who are being generous and other people who are serving. And actually you get in the game as well in your life and just stop hiding behind fear, though it may be real and say, I want to dive in and be a part of this community of people even though it may hurt me because Jesus Christ is in it and it's worth it to be a part of it. It is so worth it. The early Romans said of the Christians in Rome, they actually said this, you can look it up, they said, see how they love one another. Not see how they try and fix one another or see how they tolerate one another or see how they do conflict resolution with one another but see how they love one another. And that love, it changed the world. And that love will change our world. I'll close with this. In um, the third century, there was a huge plague which broke out in the Roman Empire. And the only people that walked into the heart of that plague were the Christians, were the early church. 
And in 260 AD, there was a letter that was written from uh, Dionysius talking about the love the early church had for each other and for the people who were dying, people they did not even know. And this is from 260 AD. And this is what he wrote about the early Christians and how they loved each other during this play. He had met me. He writes this. He says, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And when, with them departed this life serenely happy. Amazing. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Get this, many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Now that's compelling. See, what they're literally doing is they're saying, we love you and care for you so much that we are actually going to die in your place so that in our death, taking your disease, you can actually live. Now, I wonder where they got an idea like that from. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, his family. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. This, this is what the church is. And this is what God is inviting you to be a part of. Mm, what an honor. Amen. Well, as we close the service, we're going to close with a time of prayer, both in reflection of the message and also it's just we want to keep being a church that's faithful in prayer. And so Mike and Sherry Collins are going to come and join us on stage and just pray um, for this rooted vision that we would just live out this as a loving community um, as we close service. So then the, the team will lead us in a final song and I'll close us with some important um, announcements. So as they come, would you guys pray? with them as we close things out. Father God, thank you so much for this opportunity to stand and praise you together as a church. Father, will you teach us to be rooted in you? Will you teach us to be the branch that bears fruit so that we can bring you the glory, Father? Father, I just pray that you will bless the marriages in this congregation. Mm -hmm that you will strengthen them. I ask, Father, that you will plant in us a hunger to abide in your word daily. And Father, I just feel led to ask that you would help us be more transparent with one another so that we can go deeper in our love for one another. Mm -hmm. And I just praise you for this. Father God, thank you for what you're doing in our church. Thank you for this new season of ministry as we embark on new initiatives and new things to reach new people and to grow deeper ourselves, we pray for your blessing, Father. And we pray that you will continue to nudge us and move us along your will, that we would do your will, that we would reach many others, that our church would bear fruit, that our church would share your love, and that you would do great things through us, and that you do great things in each of us also. Mm. Yes, sir. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.